Revelation chapter 14. We've seen a pattern in the book of Revelation in which hard words regarding difficulties or judgment or persecution are followed by words of worship. Let me just sort of review a bit here. After the opening of the seals, the first six seals in chapter 6, we are told the next chapter of the 144,000 and the great multitude in heaven, and we have statements of worship. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From the angels and the four living creatures, we hear Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then we have the seventh seal, which brings the seven trumpets, the last three of which are identified as three woes. And just of the, the horrendous judgments that they bring. In chapter 11, the two witnesses that God sends are killed and people rejoice. People give gifts to each other because of the death of these witnesses. This leads to the seventh trumpet. And here we're expecting something horrendous. And instead what we read is, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before the throne of God respond, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who was and who is and was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. That is... The pattern we see that it's in the face of great judgments and difficult circumstances, we are reminded of the reality of who God is and who he continues to be, and that our response is to be one of worship. And that is, I think, the key theme in the book of Revelation. In the midst of judgments, above all, we are to worship God. Well, in chapters 12 and 13, there's a shift of sorts in which uh, John talks of the dragon and his attempts to destroy the church. Then the rising of the two beasts, the beast from the sea, the Roman Empire, the beast from the land, the Jewish religious leaders, and how the beast from the land, the Jewish religious leaders, as an agent of the Roman Empire, deceive people and force people to worship the first beast and to receive the mark of the beast. Without the mark, you cannot survive economically. And in light of these these terrible difficulties, we come to chapter 14. And the point, I think, is very clear as the chapter opens. The Lamb of God is victorious. Now, this may seem very strange, but if you look back in uh, chapter 13, um, we are told in verse number 7 that the first beast is given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. It is not simply persecution. It is persecution on an unprecedented scale. And just, I think, when we think that there is no hope, then chapter 14 comes along and it opens with words of worship. If you look at the first five verses of chapter 14, we looked at this last week, they actually match very closely what we read in chapter 5. Um, and chapter 5, by the way, what we find there begins with agony because there is no one who can open the seals and read the scroll to tell us what is in it. But then someone says, no, we have here the lamb, we have the lion of Judah, and then worship 
is the result. One author has entitled his section on these five verses, The Lamb's Holy Soldiers Sing a New Song. Just to review quickly what we looked at last week. As John sees the vision, he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. The implications are clear. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Standing on Mount Zion means he is victorious. He has been enthroned. He is the King of Kings. He is, is, present tense, the ruler of all the nations. So I reminded you, a verse that I knew as a child growing up, my parents being missionaries, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But the verse before it, Jesus says, this is after his resurrection, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. He is the lamb standing on Mount Zion. But he doesn't stand alone. With him are 144,000. The lamb is not alone. He is not victorious alone. He shares his victory with his people. And we know that these are his people by their number. We've seen this already, the 144,000. God knows how many people he has. By what is written on them his name and the name of his father, by the fact that they are redeemed from the earth, that they follow the lamb wherever he goes, that is, they are disciples, the fact that no lie is found in their mouth, that is, in contrast to the dragon, who is the deceiver, the father of lies. They are blameless, we are told. These are God's people standing with the lamb on Mount Zion. Then John hears a sound from heaven, like a roaring of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder, like that of harpists playing their harps. And he hears the 144,000 sing a new song. Seven times in the Old Testament we see that phrase, a new song. And always it is in reference to God's redemptive and creative works in history. Because of the redemption that God brings, there is a new song. And John clearly intends this because he tells us, that no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Because of their redemption, they now sing this new song to the Lamb. But why do we say that they are holy soldiers? Well, because we are told that they do not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. I don't want to rehash what we looked at last week, but I mean, this is, you can imagine a Pandora's box where people are like, we knew it's the women, you know, they're the ones, they're the cause of all the problems. No, again, we need to go to the Old Testament. The purity, ceremonial purity of abstaining from sexual relations was required of God's people before they went into battle. Before Israel would go into battle, men were to abstain from sexual relations with their wives. Not that sexual relations with their wives are wrong. But this is a time of ceremonial purity because they are getting ready to go into battle. And so here we see the 144,000, not only ceremonially, but also, I would say, morally pure. They are prepared to go into battle. One last thing about the 144,000. We are told that they are the first fruits. And in the Old Testament, first fruits symbolize the first installment. It's just the beginning. If you have the first fruit of the harvest, it means that the biggest part of the harvest is yet to come. And these 144,000 are just the beginning. In the same way that Christ is the first fruit from the dead, the first one to be resurrected, many, many more will follow on the day of resurrection.
All of these things we are told in light of the fact of the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast, who will make war against God's people, those who stand with the Lamb. Today we will look at uh, more in chapter 14. The rest of the chapter, from beginning from verse 6 to the end of the chapter, is actually divided into sort of seven sections in that we are faced with seven persons or personages. Uh, three angels, and then the Son of Man, and then three additional angels. That is, the Lord Jesus is in the midst of his angels, uh, the three before him and the three after him, uh, sort of in a sense to surround him as John presents his vision. Today we will look at the first three, the angels that speak words of warning and judgment. Let's look first of all at verses 6 and 7 here in Revelation chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. This angel is seen as flying in midair. We've seen this earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter 8, where you have the eagle that is flying in midair, and it says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. This is not what this angel says precisely. Instead, we are told that this angel has the eternal gospel. What the angel speaks is, quite simply, the gospel. And if we would listen to what we find in the rest of Scripture, we would in fact know that this is what is the gospel. If you look at verse number 7, when he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, and then the rest of that verse, that is the gospel encapsulated. So let's look at it, what, what he has to say. First of all, fear God. Now, living in when and where we do, this is not usually something we associate with the gospel. If, if I were to ask you, what would you say to someone if you wanted them to become a Christian? I don't think we would say, well, the first thing I would say is fear God. That's just not something that we normally think of. And yet, if you listen to what we find in Scripture, this is critical to the Gospel. Uh, the Virgin Mary in her song, Mary's Magnificat, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. From the words of Jesus, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, a lot of people think that he's talking about the devil. And he's not. Satan does not have the power to cast us into hell. God does. And Jesus says, listen, if you're going to be afraid of something or of someone, don't be afraid of someone who can kill you. Because if that's all they can do, if that's the worst they can do, then you shouldn't be afraid of them. What you should be afraid of is someone who can kill you and then cast you into hell. That's God. So you should fear him. And again, I think we're uncomfortable with this. This is not something we normally associate with the gospel. The gospel is the good news. We want people to come in. And yet the first thing that the angel says is that we are to fear God. When Peter preached to the Gentiles for the very first time in Acts chapter 10 in the house of Cornelius, he said, I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, 
but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Peter said, I get it, that fear of God is not only found among the Jews, but also among the Gentiles. So first of all, we are to fear God. Secondly, to give him glory. The Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus preaches the gospel of the kingdom, he says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Among some of the things that Jesus said his last night before his death, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. We should remember that the eternal gospel is not simply escape from eternal damnation, that we're not going to hell. It, in fact, points to a new life. And when you live a new life, there should be consequences, there should be results, there should be fruit. And this fruit should bring glory to God. The third thing the angel says is because the hour of judgment has come. Now, we must acknowledge, and I think not enough people do, that the gospel only makes sense as good news in light of the news of coming judgment. In other words, you can't have good news if you don't have bad news. And the bad news is that judgment is coming. When John the Baptist preached the gospel, preparing the way for the Lord, he told the people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. By the way, have you ever thought of that? Why would you repent if the kingdom of heaven is near? If, if heaven is coming near, isn't that what we want? Why does John say repent? Because when the kingdom of heaven comes, it comes in two ways. One is in grace and the other is in judgment. And if you are not prepared, then when the kingdom of heaven comes, that's not going to be a nice thing for you. Therefore, he says, repent. When the religious leaders come out to hear John, in his typically politically incorrect way, John tells them, you brood of vipers, you, know, you bunch of snakes. I remember years ago when we went through Matthew making the comment, There's, this is a profound statement. This isn't just name calling. You brood of snakes, you brood of vipers. In other words, you come from a long line of snakes going all the way back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. You children of Satan. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he continued. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, judgment is coming. You better repent. Shortly before his death, Jesus spoke of judgment. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The night before his death, Jesus spoke of the coming of the work and the coming and the work of the Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. When we share the gospel with someone, and that seems to be 
know, a, a nice way to put it. I want to share the gospel with you. Do we say to people, you need to fear God because judgment is coming? And yet the angel who has the eternal gospel, this is precisely what he says. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. God, as the creator, is critical to the gospel. I would say that if God is not the creator, if we do not believe that God is the creator, then there is no gospel. Nine years ago, it's been nine years now, when I performed John and Kathy's wedding, I preached from the passage in Acts chapter 14. And I asked the question, what do you say to someone who has never heard of God before? Because this is a situation that Paul and Barnabas face uh, in the town of Lystra. What do you say to someone who has never heard of the true God? This is what Paul tells them. We are bringing you the good news. Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. He has shown you kindness by by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Paul says, we've come to tell you the good news. God created the world. Later in chapter 17, when Paul is in Athens, and there he's speaking to the people on Mars Hill, uh, who have this, they have an altar to the unknown God, and he's there to tell them who that God is. He begins this way. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. That is, he began with creation. I think that the gospel, as this angel speaks it, is far different than what we hear today proclaimed by the church. You know, the whole science thing with creation, evolution, so we don't want to go there because that might offend people. And you don't want to tell people to be afraid because if they're afraid, you know, they might not do what you want them to do. You don't want to talk about judgment. Well, you know, if you take all these things out, then you don't have the gospel. But two questions might be asked about this. How is the eternal gospel here a warning? Because I think it is spoken as a warning. These three angels speak words of warning. How is it a warning? Those who choose to worship the beast and to receive his mark will not be numbered among God's people. That is, they will not stand with the lamb. They will not sing a new song. They will not follow the lamb wherever he goes. They will not be blameless. They will suffer the judgment that is coming. But the second question is, for whom is this message intended? And here the NIV is, is not helpful, as in, is the case in the rest of Revelation. Because when we read this, we have a sense that the angel is there preaching the gospel to the whole world. If you look at it in verse number six. Um, on some level, that is true. But if you look at how the text is presented, and if you look at the example of the early church, we see something else. Jesus told us of his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see it in Paul's ministry. First he went to the Jews, then he went to the Gentiles. That, I think, is what is being said here. And you're like, okay, Damon, where, where do you get this in this verse? Well, he speaks to two groups of people. 
again, the NIV puts them as one group, but it's actually two groups. First of all, to those who live on the earth, and then to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Those who live on the earth should actually be translated those who live in the land. The land of Israel. We find this expression, um, I think, at least seven times in the book of Revelation. It refers to the Jewish people. And we saw in chapter 13, the second beast is the beast from the land, from Israel. So, first of all, this angel preaches the gospel to the Jews. And then the gospel is to be preached to the Gentiles, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Jesus, in Matthew 24, when speaking of the judgment that was going to come on Jerusalem and Israel, said, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Not the end of the world, but the end of Israel. That is, the judgment that occurred in 70 AD would occur after the gospel had been preached to all nations. Paul wrote to the Colossians some years later, All over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all his truth. The gospel had been preached throughout the world. So this angel represents the work of the church preaching the gospel. But it is a warning. Judgment is coming. Now we have the second angel in verse number 8. And here we have one verse. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. This is the first time Babylon has been mentioned in the book of Revelation. As we go along, it will be sort of explained further. Um, we saw this earlier that the beast is mentioned in chapter 11, and it's not till chapter 13 we're actually told who the beast is. Who is Babylon? To what does it refer? Well, books have been written about this, and we not pretend to solve the issue so quickly. I think if you look at Scripture, Jerusalem is the most natural fit. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the Apostle Peter writes, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends, her your greeting, or sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Uh, Silas, who helped Peter write the epistle, is also in Jerusalem. We know that Silas and John Mark were from Jerusalem. We know that Peter stayed in Jerusalem. Um, that is where he ministered. Beyond all that, the primary focus of the book of Revelation is the breaking of the covenant, the consequences of breaking it. You broke the covenant, therefore you're receiving this judgment. It is directed against Israel. Again, we will see more about this as we go along, but I think I'm convinced at least that it is speaking of Jerusalem. And I think what's interesting, he doesn't explain it. He simply says, Babylon is fallen. Um, And, I mean, what, what is the connection? Well, the first angel had the eternal gospel and said judgment is near. Jerusalem rejected the gospel and therefore Jerusalem has fallen. Babylon has fallen. The Jews failed, generally speaking, to embrace the eternal gospel. And as a result, she made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. 
what does this mean? If Babylon is Jerusalem, and I'm convinced it is, God chose the Jewish people to be a light to the world. Not to keep the light to themselves. In fact, the verse I quoted earlier from Matthew 5, let your light so shine. Don't put it under a bushel. Don't hide it. God had chosen the Jewish people to be a light to the world. She was, in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 2, to be a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and the truth. Paul is saying as a Jew, listen, people, we have the truth. We've got scripture. We are to be light in darkness. We are to be instructors to those who need instructing. We are to be a guide for the blind. But instead, they sold out. The leadership of the Jews sold out and so corrupted God's truth that it is seen in terms of marital infidelity, adulteries. That is, what the Jews presented of the truth was so corrupted, they were no longer faithful to God's truth. If you get a chance sometime this week, I'd encourage you to read Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, it's an interesting chapter in which we are told of two women. One is wisdom, the other is folly. And the first one is spoken of is wisdom. She prepares a table with meat and wine. She sends out her maids. She gets up on the highest point of, in town and calls everyone to come to her house. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. This is what Israel was supposed to be to the world. But instead of being wisdom, she was the woman who is folly. She calls out, let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment. Well, that's exactly what the first one said. But then afterwards it gets different. Stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of the grave. Instead of preparing a wonderful feast of God's truth for the world, they had corrupted God's truth. Instead of being wisdom, they had become folly. Now we come to the third angel speaking warning. And this is where we will finish today. Verses 9 through 13. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. First angel, we have the warning of the eternal gospel. The second is the warning of the pronouncement of the factness of that judgment. Babylon is fallen. It's going to happen. 
Now we're given the specifics of that judgment. It has to do with those who have left the worship of the true God instead of worshiping false gods. They take the mark of the beast. They worship the image of the beast. And therefore now they will drink the wine of God's fury. The idea of God's wrath being something that you drink is a very Old Testament idea. Something I think that doesn't really make sense to us, but it's, it's very much there in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drained it to the dregs and the goblet that makes men stagger. In Jeremiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all to, all to whom I send you drink it. As those that he's sending uh, Jeremiah to, that they are to drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. One might ask, why is God's wrath pictured as a goblet of wine? Well, at least two explanations have been put forward. I think one is stronger than the first or than the other. The first is that those who are intoxicated have lost control of their senses. They have lost the ability to defend themselves. They are in many ways ready to experience whatever someone else is going to bring upon them. And therefore, God is saying, I am putting you into a condition in which you will receive my judgment. The second explanation is that in the ancient world, criminals who were about to be executed would be offered a potion which would diminish their capacity to experience pain. Um, but it also told them something else. Hey, you're going to die. You, know, you drink this. And I'm letting you drink this so you won't suffer as much. But you know what? When everything's said and done, you will, in fact, be dead. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 15, we are told that before Jesus was crucified, he was offered this. He was offered wine mixed with myrrh. In other words, crucifixion is the most painful death he could experience in the ancient world. And he was offered something not to take the edge off, because it's going to hurt, but that so somehow he would be in a fog and it would not be as real as if he were fully conscious. I think the first one has more to commend it, but you know what? In both cases, you drink the wine, you're going to die. You drink the wine, you're going to be destroyed. And that is the point after all of this particular passage. There is also the image of the wine press that people would cut out a wine press out of stone and then throw the grapes in and then would get in there and stomp on them and then the red grape juice would come out almost like blood. There is that sense of God's judgment there as well. But here the judgment is spoken of again in very Old Testament terms tormented with burning sulfur. This is the language of the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 19 in which God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He brought down burning sulfur from heaven on the cities, on the plain, on those living in the cities, and on the vegetation in the land. And Abraham got up early in the morning and he saw the smoke rising up from the plain from Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we are told it isn't something that's going to burn for a while and then be gone 
but their torment will be eternal forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. All because they chose to worship the beast and not the lamb. Just parenthetically, as we go along, there will be more said by John about eternal punishment. But John then says something really interesting. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. We've heard this before in chapter uh, 13, uh, after recording that the beast was going to be given more power uh, to conquer the church. John then says, you know, you need to be patient and you need to endure. Then we come to something that in some ways may seem out of place. It's verse number 13. It is the benediction, the second of seven benedictions we find in the book of Revelation. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. A benediction is a blessing. It is a blessing that is pronounced. And here it is pronounced on those who die die in the Lord. I don't think that what is intended is, if you die as a martyr, you are blessed. You know, blessed are the martyrs. I don't think that's what's being said here. I don't think it is the circumstance of one's death that is in view, rather the obedience in one's life. And therefore the Spirit answers back. You know, when you say, blessed are those who die in the Lord, and the Spirit basically says, amen, that is true. But he goes on to say, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. One can almost hear Paul's words to the Corinthians. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And while those who worship the beast will not have rest day or night, God's people will rest from their labors. And the good that they have done in this world will follow them. I need to stop here. Going on a bit long. What can we take with us as we leave here today? For meditation, things to keep in our hearts, for holy living, putting this into practice. There's so many things, I just want to mention several. First of all, the nature of the eternal gospel. It is truth. It is a warning. It is salvation. It is judgment. It is not therapeutic, but it is life-giving. And I would, I would ask you to, in the coming days, meditate on what is the gospel? Is what you think the gospel is what the angel says here in this passage? The second thing is the call to endurance, to look beyond present circumstances. Those who are going to rest, this stands in contrast to those who have no rest. But it's, it's much more than that. The rest comes later. Biblical perseverance is determined by the future, eternity, not by the circumstances of the moment. Our hope is to transcend our lives where we are right now. It doesn't mean we neglect the world and think only of heaven. Um, 
it doesn't mean that we think only of this world and, and think nothing of heaven. As humans, we tend to go to one or the other extreme. We are to live here and now. This is where God has put us. But in the midst of tribulation, understand this isn't the final, this isn't the end of the story. This is only a part. This is only a chapter in the story. And one day, we will rest from our labors. And by God's grace, what we have done in this life will remain. We are called to be faithful and to endure in the world and to know that our reward awaits us. And then there's one more thing. Verse number 12 says that this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. Take this with a grain of salt. This is just my opinion. But I can't help but be, can't help but take note of the fact that the punishment that is described is the punishment that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the Lord told Abraham that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pleaded with God not to do it. And that's where you have the famous story of, what if there are 50 righteous people? Will you still destroy? No, I won't. What if there are 45? What if there are 40, 30, 20, 10? Abraham is desperate to see God not as one who brings judgment. But I think he finally reaches a point in his thinking where he realizes, yes, judgment will come. In the next chapter, he gets up early in the morning, and there it is. The smoke, the burning sulfur has come down and wiped out those on the plain. And what does Abraham do? Is he filled with joy? It's like, man, we finally got rid of those pesky people. Those people who, who did not worship the true God. No, here we see a man who pleaded for the lives of these people. There's a verse in the book of Psalms that I think it would do us good to hold on to as we go through this part of Revelation. It says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Hmm. I think we do. And we sort of assume that he does because of the judgment that is coming. But no. God's people, those who are not God's people, are made in his image. They are precious to him. And when they turn away from him, he must judge them. But he does not delight in it. And I think, again, just my opinion, John may be saying, listen, those of you who are God's people, God's judgment's coming, and perhaps on people in your family, people you know, people you love. And what he describes is not pleasant. It's eternal torment. And John says, I know this is hard. This calls for patient endurance. Because I think if we are God's people, we will not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Sometimes it is very hard for us to accept what God will do to those who are not his people. We live in a time where theologically many in the church have turned away from the doctrine of hell. It's just too difficult to get our minds around. John says it calls for patient endurance by the grace of God to know that judgment will come.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the good news that you have sent to us by your Son. But I fear that we have corrupted it somewhat. We've taken the edge off. We don't want to speak of fear or judgment. Sometimes perhaps even neglect the fact that you are the creator. I thank you for this passage of scripture and how it reminds us of what the gospel is. That judgment is very much a part of what you are doing in human history and what you will do. And may we as your people not take delight in the judgment that falls on those who are not your people. But give us grace and endurance to know that you are God. You are doing what is right. May we think about the things that we have heard this day. Meditate on your word. Hide it in our hearts. But above all, put it into practice. I thank you that we could come together today to worship you. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? Benediction comes from the last verse in the Bible. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people.